0: This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll free at 888-320-5885. grab them and turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, what does the word Deuteronomy mean? Second 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 law. The second giving of the law. That's what's intended there. Little known fact about the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus Christ quoted the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in his earthly ministry. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, turn to chapter 5. This is the Decalogue. it begins with a very important command. Before we begin, let's uh, we begin reading it, let's pray together. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for our meals every day. Every good thing comes from you. We need to acknowledge it. You are a generous God to allow us life, not only us, those who have clung to the cross, but every uh, reprobate, every pagan, every sinner in the world who is alive right now, uh, enjoying your earth and breathing your air, uh, demonstrates by their very existence that you're a, a generous, merciful God. We thank you, God, for Grace, grace that allows us to repent, and uh, God, in repentance, we uh, recognize all the more our need for you and our need to understand you rightly. We thank you tonight for the next hour or so as we engage our minds in really the most important thing we can do, thinking about you, trying to uh, clarify our understanding of the nature of the existent, uh, always existent, ever-existing creator of all things. We thank you, God, tonight. Open our minds that we might understand your word. Show us good things in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The Decalogue, the second giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 and verse number 6 begins with a reminder that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, had brought them out of Egypt from the land of slavery. Rule number 1, verse number 7, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself, verse 8, an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands, to a thousand generations, rather, of those who love me and keep my commandments." Across the page after the giving of the law, there was a summation uh, that the Israelites called the Shema because the Hebrew word Shema is the beginning of the verse in verse number 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And based on the exclusivity of God who was to be worshipped exclusively as the only God above all the other past gods of the Egyptians or any of the Canaanite gods, God was to be revealed, Yahweh was to be revealed as the God, the only God, the exclusive God. And it began this way, and the Israelites have been reciting this ever since. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. And if you look in the marginal reading, if you have one there, there's several ways to understand this little Hebrew phrase. The Lord is one God. He's the only God. There's only one God. That's the idea here. And you are then to exclusively focus on this God, verse 5. Love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. If you found your worksheet there, jot this down if you would as we discuss the biblical data, as we understand the nature of God. There is something crystal clear throughout the Scripture from beginning to end that there is but one God. And that is the doctrinal summary of Old Testament theology. There is one God. God is one And he's the one we should be focusing on. As a matter of fact, we see the Old Testament unfold. Any worship of that God in any uh, uh, way that might twist him into some kind of, uh, of representative of a pantheon of gods was to be condemned. There is no idol worship. You can't even worship Yahweh riding on the back of a golden calf. There is one true God. Jot down Isaiah chapter 45 before we leave the Old Testament. Verse number 5 and 6, actually you can jot down 5 through 7, the verbiage gets crystal clear in the scripture that there is no other God besides the God of Israel. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, there is no God besides me, God says. I am the Lord God, there is no other. I formed light and create darkness, I bring prosperity, create disaster, there's only one God. And I think most people, including our Jewish friends, would say, well, certainly, that's the Old Testament teaching, and something in the New Testament changed. Let's go to the New Testament, James chapter 2, James chapter 2. Actually, you don't even need to turn there. You know that verse, verse 19. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and again, I know this is too much information and too many things at once, but James chapter 2, verse 19, you know the verse, it simply says that even the demons believe, well, that started with this, you believe there is one God very good he says even the demons believe and they shudder that one god 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to be crystal clear about this verse number 4 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse number 4 Corinth found itself in a culture with a pantheon of gods and by that i mean groups of uh, a belief in a group of of powers invisible powers that people gave their worship and sacrifice to. And he said this in verse number four, so then about eating food that is sacrificed to idols. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, you could put that in quotes if you want, It certainly, it's a small g in your Bibles, right? Whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, here it comes now, gods and many lords, many bosses. Verse six, yet for us, there is but one God. There's the Shema concept the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, one boss of us, Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is one God. That's the concept repeated Old Testament and new. It is the doctrinal summary of the Old Testament and it is what every Christian and Bible-believing person should affirm. No problem. (laughs) Here's the problem. Are you ready? There are three persons in the Bible that are designated as God. And we don't need to uh, go very far in this first one, uh, but number one on your worksheet there, you can just jot down the passage that you're in, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. There is but one God, the Father. That's the designation of the first person designated in Scripture as God. He's called the Patros, the Father. We don't need much work on that. We could go to several passages to talk about God the Father, but we don't need to. That's an assumed, obvious, no-brainer in Scripture. Here's the debated point, and we need to spend some time here. There was this person named Jesus Christ who called himself the Son, and he is the one that is disputed as to his nature. It's debated for centuries. It's still debated today churches have split over this topic and we need to figure it out. A few things we want to say about this as we unravel it. Let's take some more space here to work it through. We need to examine just afresh and briefly the what I call the deifying claims of scripture and of Christ himself. We're going to take the Bible as seriously in the New Testament as we do in the Old and we need to look at the verbiage of the Bible and we need to say what does it say? Well, we could spend a whole night talking just about the Old Testament claims about the New Testament Messiah. And that we could do, but let me just give you one for summary's sake. Go with me real quickly to Isaiah chapter 9, a familiar verse. We usually read it at Christmas, but Isaiah chapter 9 is a critically important text. We could spend our night in the Psalms. We could look all over the prophets. We could look at Micah 5.2. There's all kinds of passages that speak to the bizarre deification of this person that was coming. And I say it's bizarre because there was nothing the Jews wanted to do more than to leave God as the exclusive and singular God. Only one God. But we have claims like this that get very weird. Verse number 6, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, this picture, you know the historical context, it was all a part of a picture of what was going to happen. But it moves from the immediate historical context to something much broader to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is typical of the prophets that spoke before the fall of the, northern, of the southern kingdom, before they went to Babylon and to the Babylonian exile. They looked to the ultimate son of David, and the ultimate son of David was going to be the person that would do what David was supposed to do, at least it was promised to his son to do, and that is establish an everlasting reign on earth as Israel the favored people of God. So the son language, and the, I don't want to get too far off on that, but the bottom line, son is born, uh, the government, did I read this phrase yet? Will, will be or rest on his shoulders. This, by the way, is what the angelic announcement was to Mary, right? And the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called, and there's four appellations, four titles here with two words apiece, wonderful counselor. No problem there. He comes alongside of, he helps, he is the Emmanuel, he's God with us. He's going to be the ever-present reality of God, we would say, but maybe it's just as representative. Problem is, the next phrase here, we have the abbreviated form of Elohim, and it's the word God, El. We have the mighty, the powerful God. Now, this is the Son, the language of the Son, who was always attributed to David, based on 2 Samuel chapter 7, was going to be the ultimate solution for the governmental problems of Israel. He's called now Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and it gets even worse. Look at the next one. Everlasting Father. Now, how's the Son called the Father? This, by the way, is the argument in Hebrews chapter 1. The whole thing about Son, Father, how does that all work? Here is the Son being called the Everlasting Father. And lastly, we also know him as as Isaiah "...unfolds the message of the ultimate millennial kingdom, the Prince of Peace. He will put down all the foes and we will have peace among God's people. Of the increase of his government and his peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne, there's the picture of Second Samuel 7, and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever." If you read Second Samuel chapter 7, you see this discussion of the son, and you think, well, that must be Solomon, David's son. And clearly, it moves into some futuristic picture of an ultimate son coming from the line of David. That's why the genealogies of Christ are so important, who would fulfill all the things that 2 Samuel 7 said. Well, the prophets expand upon it, and they call this person the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Yeah, Second Samuel chapter 7, question about that? Just the whole passage is what we call the Davidic covenant. It's the promise of God to David that his son would be the ultimate leader in Israel. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty, bottom of verse 7, will accomplish this. In other words, this isn't going to fall to the wayside. God will do it. Now that's a pretty amazing, what I call a deifying claim about the ultimate son of David. He's going to be more than a person, more than just a guy, more than just a good human being. He has this divine... Quality And amongst the people and through prophets who were wanting to do nothing more than to hold to the exclusivity of the worship of the one God, this was an amazing statement. Philippians chapter 2, these words are super important and they are repeated in a hundred different places. That's an exaggeration. What, 15 probably? Of good statements about the repeating of the concept of the incarnation of Christ being more than just a person. And even pre-existence, I talk to people about Christ, I'm saying, if you want to turn Christ into something other than God, you've got to create a whole new category for him. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses believe that the, uh, Michael the archangel is the incarnate Christ. Where are we? Philippians 2.5? Now, of course, this started as a pastoral concern for people to give deference to other people. There's a problem in Philippi, and they weren't putting others first. And he said, no, we want to talk about the ultimate person who put the others first. It is, um, it is Christ. Oh, I was making the point about pre-existence. Who else is pre-existent? I asked my daughter this. She's five years old. Put her in her bed. I said, hey, uh, where were you before you were born? I love the, throwing out those daddy theological questions. Well, I don't know. Well, you didn't exist, see? And we were talking about Christ. and I say Christ does, though, see? This is the amazing thing about, about Christ, the pre-existent one. Who, look at this, verse 6, being in very nature God, okay? Morphe, the, the, the very form of God, which has no form, We're talking more than about physical features. He is God. See, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Uh, He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Can't say that about anybody else. I mean, maybe an apparition of an angelic being, but here comes someone who existed as God and then puts on human likeness. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. He was already exalted, John 17 said, but now he's going to get everybody to pay attention to him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the boss, he's the king, to the glory, bringing credit now, to God the Father. This picture repeated often. You're in Philippians. Go to Colossians. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Right next door. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. Colossians 1, 12 through 17. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified, sh- uh, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Son of David. This everlasting Father, a mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's talk about the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. There's the picture from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He is the, the manifestation, the picture of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, which freaks out our JW neighbors, uh, the prototokos, that, that means he is, the, uh, he is the inheritor, which is the picture in Philippians. He inherits the attention and the submission of, of heaven and earth and under the earth, of all those living. He is the, the inheritor of overall creation, the prototokos. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, which would make it clear he must not be. He didn't have a beginning. Not only did he preexist in Philippians 2, he didn't have a start all things were created, for by him all things created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. You understand the subject of this is Christ, not the Father. All things were created by him and for him. Now put your mind back in Deuteronomy and the, the doctrinal summary of Israel. Everything's for Yahweh, the one and only God. And now we learn that the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor is now among us. We visibly see him, the son of David, and he is the one that we're told everything was created by and everything is created for. That's blasphemy if we're not talking about the same person here, or I should say the same God. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Sounds like a powerful king. Across the page, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's the picture of Philippians 2. Hebrews 1, verse 3. don't need to turn there. You know that passage, but jot it down. The sun is the radiance of his glory. The sun is the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And the whole first chapter of Hebrews making the case, this is no angel we're talking about. Angels, the only other person you could make a case of a pre-existing spirit. But the angels, we learn, had a beginning. This one didn't, which is the whole point of the Malchizedekian analogy in the book of Hebrews. Deifying claims, bottom right-hand corner of your worksheet. Because we don't have time, I gave you three more hours of information on this very point that I'm trying to make right now. The first one there is from Hebrews 1. Second one is from Luke, I think, 2. And the third one is a topical sermon on the deity of Christ. But the deifying claims, that's amazing. Secondly, let's call this Christ's otherwise blasphemous acts. This also makes the case that this person that walked among us in Galilee was more than a prophet, more than an angel, more than he he was something other than anything we've ever known otherwise blasphemy. And this is in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, if he does these kinds of things and he's not God, we, we've got a real problem on our hands. Jot down Exodus chapter 34 verse 14. You could jot down Deuteronomy chapter 5. You could jot down Exodus chapter 20. All of these passages, Exodus 34 14 says, do not worship any other God. The only one you can worship is God. Worship is to be exclusively his. Now, you don't need to turn to this one either, but you remember how the story of Christ started in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi show up and they want to do what? Worship him. And the Jews said, oh, no, 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 you don't worship the coming son of David on whom the government uh, will rest on his shoulders. No, you don't do that. No, the Jewish Sabbath school grad said, well, yeah, let's let's go find him. Which, again, it took him two years to get there. Anyway, that's uh, Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. They wanted to worship him. Then all that bowing down we talked about in Philippians 2.10. But what about these kinds of statements? How about John chapter 5, verse 21? This is worth looking at. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Here are some statements of a blasphemer who should be stoned or maybe we can recruit the Romans to crucify him because he's a blasphemer. Makes himself out to be to be God. I mean, here are some of the strong statements of Jesus Christ. Either the text is wrong, and somebody just wrote this in, or Christ is a lunatic, uh, right? He thinks he's God, but he's not. Or he's a liar, as Lewis says. He, he's, 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 he's trying to get people to think he's God. And I've met people that call themselves God. Uh, I saw another one this week. I saw one, and he used to jog around the University of Arizona when I was at the, the University of Arizona in Tucson. He had a T-shirt. He had a scepter. He would jog around, and in his, it said God on his shirt. And everybody said, "There goes God. He guy thinks He's God." Now Jesus falls into that lunatic category, or he's a liar or, or something. John 5:21. "For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it." <laughs> That's kind of arrogant, isn't it? You know what the God you know what God does? I do the same thing. Really. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the Son. You won't stand before the Father. You're going to stand before me. Can you imagine that? Think about that. The rabbi comes on. I don't care how good a preacher the guy is. If he says, when you die, you're standing in front of me, and I'll figure out your life, whether you're going to heaven or not. Amazing. Let's look at this. This is the worship part. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son. Here it comes. Underline these two words. Just as they honor the Father. You know what that spells? Blasphemy. Why? Because Exodus 34, 14, and the rest of the Pentateuch says you should only worship God. I mean, Isaiah made the whole case. There's only one God. You don't worship any other God. And here comes this person. Unless you have in mind that he is the son of David, the ultimate son of 2 Samuel 7. Unless you remember that the government rests on his shoulders, that he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Unless that then this makes no sense. You're going to honor me just as you honor the father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. There's the preexistent concept again, which so many heretics seem to yawn their way through. Oh, yeah, I know he came to earth. came to earth? Who else comes to earth? Human beings don't come to earth. They don't, they're not preexistent. And again, to balance this out, you can put Acts 14, 14. Acts 14, verses 14 and 15. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. Examples of people... The first one's an example of the apostles, people worshiping them, and he says, don't worship us, we're human like you. That's Acts 14, 14 and 15. Revelation 22 is an angel that John is bowing down to, and the angel says, do not do it, I'm a fellow servant of yours, worship God. So apparently humans should reject worship, because that would be blasphemy, and angels should reject worship, that would be blasphemy. But this little interesting person I've got a file somewhere, he's telling people, not only do I do what God does, and not only will I judge you when you're dead, but you know what? You should worship me, just like you'd worship the Father. Same kind of honor you give him. Just as you honor him, honor me the same way. You sing songs to him, sing songs to me. You give offerings to him, give offerings to me. You're going you're gonna to pray to him, pray to me. Uh, honor me like you'd honor him. Angels don't, ex- don't do that, and, and humans don't do that. How about this? We're still on Christ's otherwise blasphemous acts. They made a big deal in Mark chapter 2 about him forgiving sins. Remember that? Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Let's go to 12, I guess. Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, which, by the way, even that, we're on our way through that. Oh, yeah, he's thinking in their thoughts. Do you understand that was condemned in Deuteronomy chapter 18? That humans were not supposed to be spiritists or mediums or be able to have this ability to do that. I mean, just like First Corinthians two says, you can't do that. You can't know my thoughts. See, you got to be you got to be some some spirit being, or you've got to be the spirit being. You've got to be God. Anyway, that's a side note. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. That's pretty amazing. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier for me to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. Now, we don't usually answer that question, but which is harder? Which? Oh, he asked it this way. He says, which is easier? Doing something to change something before the eternal holy God of heaven or doing some trick where the guy actually stops being a paralytic and he stands up and walks? Listen to the answer. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See? He says to the paralytic, Verse 11, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. That's the part you can see. So I'm going to do that. And he got up, and he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And everyone was amazed, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. But you know what else you've never seen anything like? A human being saying your sins are forgiven. That's the hard part of that passage. We could go on, and I do, in one of these messages, and I think it is the infant from Bethlehem, that second message on there. We talk about more things that don't make sense if you're a human being. Thirdly, letter C, it was the earthly reason for Christ's crucifixion. What was? The fact that he claimed to be deity. For this reason, this is John 5.18, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Now, you do understand to be called the son is no big deal. Oh, it is a big deal, but it's not claim of deity. People call themselves the son of God, and the angels were called the Ben Elohim. Ben Elohim, the sons of God. There was something about the unique son of God. The son of God that I argue in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 1 was the son of David. That son of man or that son of God was something different. That was not like we can call ourselves the sons of God or that the angelic class, the Ben Elohim, called themselves the sons of God. This was unique. He made himself equal with God. Or how about John 8, 58 and 59? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am, I am, which is the word Yahweh. It's a, it's a variation of the Hebrew word of the verb to be Yahweh. I am, I am. Remember the whole thing in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. Now again, he's claiming preexistence, but he's claiming preexistence even before Abraham was born and he's saying, I'm the I am. Wow. At this, they understood what he was saying. Verse 59 says, They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipped through the temple grounds, slipped away from the temple grounds. Earthly reason for Christ's crucifixion. And we could go on in that regard too. But they said, We're killing you because you make yourself out to be God. That was the question of the high priest. Do you claim to be the son of God? Is that it? It is as you say. I mean, Christ made it, made it clear. How about this? And this gets complicated Because there's so much and it's so broad, but Christ's work and his credentials are God's work and God's credentials. (laughs) Take the very first verse of the Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. That's not what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know the whole point of Jesus' miraculous ministries of with a word of his power, not only sustaining things, because we couldn't prove that, but can you make something out of nothing with an appearance of history and age it never had and do it just by speaking the word, which is the whole Jewish theology of creation, and he does it repeatedly. And then the apostles continue to write it. Hey, all things were created by him, whether visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, power, all things were created by him and for him. Now, who created the world, Christ or God? Well... See that's the problem one creation here how about judgment i mean i read that uh, john fifty five twenty two passage that all judgment has been given to the son but according to psalm 94 2 and you could do a concordance search on the word judgment god is the judge of the earth god will judge the world now jesus gets on the scene and says it won't be the father it'll be me the son wait a minute what are you trying to say Because only God judges the world. The Elohim judges the world. And you, you're now judging the world? Yeah, it's not the Father. The Father's entrusted all judgment to the Son. How about this great statement? Uh, And you could look tons of places for this. But when you talk about the angelic class, if you look in the Old Testament, you could start, if you want to jot a reference down, uh, Genesis 24, 40. Genesis 24, 40. The angelic class are ministering spirits, as Hebrews 1 says, that are gods to be dispatched by God to do his bidding. They are his angelos, his messengers. They're God's mess- That's what angels mean, right? They're messengers. They bring a message. Jot this one down. Let's start in verse 40. Are you with me? Matthew 13, 40 and 41. As the weeds are pulled up, this is the parable of the weeds, right? You've got weeds, you got wheat, you, you got to pull up the weeds. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send out, underline these two words, what? Wait a minute, man. Those aren't your angels. Those are God's, them, their angels, not yours. Send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom. Everything that causes sin and all of you, even his kingdom. Wait a minute, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of God. You're calling it your kingdom? And then you're claiming those angels that were created to be messengers of God are your angels? Hmm. What are you trying to say? Christ's work and his credentials, and again we go on and on on this one too, are God's work and God's credentials. The lines get really blurry there. And titles, that's a good place. <laughs> There's so much on this. You could just take the titles of Christ and I and catalog them or see what the list others have cataloged them. So many titles of Christ. Take those titles and just slide them over to Old Testament titles of, of God. So much is in a name in, in the scripture. And those names keep going, ooh, wow, they fit. Classic examples and easy ones to, to point out are passages like um, the first and last the I am, the Alpha, the Omega. Isaiah 44, verse 6, if you're a note taker, Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, This is what Yahweh says Israel's King and Redeemer, Yahweh Almighty. I am the first and I am the last, and apart from me, there is no God. Here's my name, first and last. I was there at the beginning, I'm there at the end. I am Yahweh. I'm the I am, I was, I, I am, and I, I, am, I am to be, I am, I am to come. I'm the first and the last. I'm the bookends on everything. There is no other God. Same thing in Isaiah 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob. Listen to me, Israel, whom I've called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. That's the appellation, the title of God. Okay, now I'll list four passages for you. Revelation 1, 8, Jesus now, look at it. I mean, it's red letters if you want to debate that. I got three others. Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God. Interesting all that's in red there, isn't it? I mean, grammatically, that's what it is. These are words of Christ. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. How about verse 17? When I saw him, this is the the, the post-resurrection Christ, John speaking, I saw Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. blasphemy. I am the living one. I am the always existing one. I'm the one who's always alive. Now, I was dead in my human form, right? he came to die and behold i'm alive forever and ever i hold the keys of death and hades even that phrase you could look at god is supposed to be the one who does that revelation chapter 2 verse 8 the postcards from christ to the church here's the church of smyrna it begins in verse 8 and it says these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life that's god's title Revelation 22, verse 12. Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he's done. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Christ. Now, come on. There's only one first and last. Because that's what Isaiah 44, 6 says. There is no other. Do you see the confusion here? We got a problem. There's only one God, and I've already got two people now claiming to be God, the Father and the Son. How about the Son of Man terminology? I know we see that as secondary. But when we say someone is the son of, we are equating the father to the son. They see that. Not always. But like uh, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement, right? What did that mean? You're less than encouragement? Was it a slam on him? No, that that was a compliment. Son of encouragement. He's the embodiment of encouragement. Well, the son of man was an interesting title. It was an interesting title because you are the embodiment of man, and he was also called the son of God. You're the embodiment of God. Now, the son of man terminology was already seen in the book of Daniel as being something beyond merely human. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I looked and I saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and he was led into his present and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all peoples and all nations and every man from every language worshipped him. That's blasphemy unless it's God. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the son of David who's the son of man, who's the son of God. Do you see that? Now, he's the son of David. He comes in the place of David. He is the son of man, the embodiment of man, and he's called the son of God. And according to this passage, the son of man has all those things. Well, that was one of the favorite phrases of Christ. And he says this about his coming in Matthew 26. Let's look at this one together. Did I leave you in Matthew? No, I left you in Revelation, didn't I? Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. And you just need to groan, I guess, to give me those parameters on if I'm taking you to too many passages. But if I hear the pages, I'm going to keep turning you there because these studies, these systematic studies, we're going to have to go all over the place to get these truths and assemble them together. All of this. And I think if you do this rapid fire and you start to see old covenant truths, new covenant realities, you start to see all this fits. That's not normally how we read the Bible. But sometimes we need to read it that way so we can put all these thoughts together and lay them side by side and see the implications that we should draw. Because someone's going to come to you and say, Trinity's not in the Bible, Trinity's not in the Bible, Trinity's not in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. It's a word that summarizes a doctrine, like the word rapture that's not in the Bible, right? Or eschatology that's not in the Bible. Or theology's not in the Bible, right? I mean, these are concepts that summarize doctrine. Matthew 26, verse 63. 63 through 68. This is at his uh, crucifixion. Jesus remained silent before his accusers here. And the high priest said to him, Matthew 26, 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And if Daniel chapter 7, verse number 13, is not in the margin of your reference Bible, go get a refund because you need to have it there. (laughs) Or just write it in. The high priest tore his clothes and he said... He has spoken blasphemy. Do you see that he understood it? I mean, he was a seminary graduate, right? He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. You understand what blasphemy is, right? Making yourself out to be God. That's what you're doing here. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they they answered. And then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and they said, prophesy to us Christ who hit you. I can understand why they crucified him, because if he was not giving evidence for that claim, you should take him and kill him, unless, of course, he's right, unless, of course, he proved his claim. There's no middle ground, and that's why Lewis has done a good job with that concept. You cannot say, well, he's just a good teacher. He claimed to be much, 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 much more than that. Three hours of information, if you really can handle it. It's there for you. There's other messages. There's other stuff you can get that's out there by better preachers than me. But there's some things for you to chew on. Great. Holy Spirit is God. Number three. Acts chapter 5. Can't really look at this concept without that passage. Such a clear parallelism. Ananias and Sapphira had, sto- had—they uh, um, not stolen, but they had made themselves out to be giving what they shouldn't have given. And in verse 3, Peter says... Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And you said you gave it all, but you didn't. You took some of it for yourself. Verse verse 4, Acts chapter 5 verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Why then do you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. At least that's what he said in verse 3. Now he's saying you've lied to God. Circle those words and those parallel phrases there. Verse 3, why has Satan so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse number 4, you've not lied to men, you've lied to, to God. This one isn't hard, and we don't need a lot of time on this because... This is not as disputed. There's an aspect of it that's disputed, and we'll look at that in a minute. You could look at the same kinds of things. Credentials, titles, uh, credentials such as creation. Who created? Well, I thought it was God the Father. Well, we learned it's the Son. Well, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God was involved in this. Just like the Psalms say, the Spirit of God was an agent of creation. How about parallelisms like Luke chapter 1, verse 35? Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered speaking to Mary here about this child she was going to have supernaturally the angel said the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you those are parallel phrases right holy spirit's going to come upon you the power of the most high will overshadow you so the holy one so the holy one to be born will be called the son of god interesting most high holy spirit son of god Spirit, by the way, is not just called the spirit of the Father or the spirit of God. It's also called the spirit of the Son, which brought up a lot of medieval controversies as well. But Romans chapter 8, verse 9 is a good parallel that calls the spirit the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. However, you're not controlled by the flesh but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, does not belong to Christ. So the spirit of God is God. That one's not as debated. What does that leave us with? That leaves us with a, uh, a real unique reality. A unique reality that we can't get around. We're textually bound to it. And when we textually come to this conclusion, we see that what we would expect is what we find. And that is, these three names are laid side by side throughout the scripture, like um, the baptismal formula in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 19, going to all the world, make these disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's with that? Or how about 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14? May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That was their traditional salutation, benediction. We're left with a strange reality, a unique reality. And that is something that we illustrate like this. I say illustrate, but this is a definitional illustration, not a parable of any kind. You got a triangle there on the back of your sheet? You know what we're going to do with this. This isn't hard. You've done it before, but it's worth having down in your worksheet. Put, put God's name there in the middle of this. We speak of God as one God. We also in Scripture find out that there are three very important persons in this arrangement, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we learn and what we've just done is that the Father clearly is God. We didn't spend much time on that because we knew it, but we did give you one passage from 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians Chapter 8. Rather, We learn that Jesus is God, at least that's my contention, and we could go on for hours, which I have, and you can listen to it on your iPod. And we've learned also, which isn't hard to establish, that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, here's what makes this hard. That these three elements, if you will, these three seeming components, if you wanted to call them that, uh, you could say, well, these are all just parts of the whole. Problem is, there's a distinction made throughout the scripture. And that is that the Son is not the Father. They may share titles, they may be involved in the same actions, they may carry the same references to essence or their worth, but they're not the same. The Father doesn't talk to himself when he talks to the Son. The Father doesn't send himself when he sends the Son. The Son does not talk to himself when he speaks to the Father. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. I'll ask the Father, he'll send you another. That's an important word, right? And that means it's not the Father that he's going to send into the world. And the Son is not the Spirit. I go away. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send you another. It's not the Father, and it's not me. Problem is, it's God. You've seen this before. If not, then you need to jot it down and remember this definitional diagram. That's what it is. It's not an illustration. It's a diagram. It's an illustration only that it's graphical. Number two, historical patterns. In grappling with that information that is You know, we flew through and summarized. One God, Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. You're stuck with a logical conundrum, a paradox, if you want to call it that, something that doesn't add up. It's mathematically illogical. Three, one, one, three doesn't make any logical sense. So there are historical patterns that resolve the problem for us, logically but not biblically. The first one we call, and I mean this in the broadest possible historical sense, Unitarianism. 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 And if you want some other names for this, if you're readers, when you come across the word Arian or Arianism from the 4th century, this is not Arminianism in contradistinction to Calvinism. This is Arianism much earlier in the church, 4th century. Or uh, Socianism from the 16th century, Post-Reformation branch off uh, sect, Socian islam would fall into this category, which the church history often called it, that Jehovah Witnesses, we could label under that, and and several others. Unitarians, what do we mean by Unitarian? Unitarian means that we must be misunderstanding Christ. He can't be God because there's only one God. And we must be misunderstanding the Spirit. He must not be a distinct person. So what we do is we strip the deity from Christ, that's what Unitarians have to do, he's not really God, and then we say the Spirit's not a distinct person. Oh, the Spirit's God, but all we're saying is God is Spirit, and the Spirit is just God. So two things happen. We no longer see distinction between the Father and the Spirit. In other words, that side of the triangle that said, hey, the Father is not the Spirit, the Unitarians say, oh, yes, he is. The Father is the Spirit. Oh, and that whole thing about the equal sign between the Son and God, that's not right. That way, we still add it up. How many gods are there? There's only one God. And we figured it out. You're thinking too much of Christ, and the Spirit's not distinct from the Father. That's called classic Unitarianism. Church history has called it that. I know we talk about Unitarian churches and all that. But the point is, the deity of Christ is denied, and the personality of the Holy Spirit is denied. Unitarianism. How about secondly let's call this one tritheism you can do it with the dash or without the dash tritheism tritheism, that's obvious, isn't it? okay, one God uh, I guess but let's not really see it that way let's see it as Christ is God, I can't argue with that the Spirit is God, I can't argue with that the Father is God, there's really three gods that one God thing didn't really mean one it meant three because we found out there's three, so there's three that 's tritheism, um, if you want to connect it to historical words, monophysism, monophysism of the sixth century monophysism, and you can look at that word and say, "Oh I understand mono is one what they said there monophysism was the concept that the physism, the, the the substance of Christ was unique and, and independent of the Father. the essence of Christ was different, therefore you 've got two gods that is the necessary fallout of the 6th century heresy. How about Hinduism? That'll work. <laughs> Hinduism, and I think I put the tri-triumph or whatever they call it. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the creator god, the sustainer god, and the destroyer god. Is that what it is, former Hindus? Uh, creator god, uh, sustainer god. I don't know. <laughs> Any former Hindus here? That's you, isn't it? Um, and the destroyer god, all of those, and look at Hindu uh, art, right? You see the three, the, the the tritheistic view of of the of the Hindu god, or how about modern day Mormons, right? Modern day Mormons, I mean, in essence, that's what they are in the concept, at least, of saying the essence of Christ is different. Monophysism, the concept is there, present in in Mormonism, and that is, that there's distinction, and therefore there's more than one god, and they'd say there's more than three, but as it relates to the distinction of Christ. The problem, problem with the first one is um, Unitarianism. Christ is God and the Spirit is distinct. The problem with the second one is um, the Bible's really clear. There's only one God. So with those two we have to, to rule out on textual grounds, perhaps not logical grounds, but textual grounds. Uh, modalism, that's our third historical pattern of taking these facts and kind of m- messing up with these facts, modalism. Couple other names for the, modalism. Modalism is um, that God is uh, modulating. There is one God, but He's modulating between three different expressions. God modulates. He is uh, the, He's God. There's only one, but then He gets His God hat on and He does the God. I'm sorry, the Father hat on. He gets the God, the Father thing going, and He does the Father thing, and then He gets the Son hat on, and He goes and He does the Son stuff, and then He the spirit thing he does that too and he's got to go do that because he's he's mo, he's modulating between the three persons of of the biblical quote unquote godhead monarchianism is another way to put this third century we began to see this phrase turn up monarchianism monarch I mean king right they they only saw one king the kingdom has one king and whether it's Jesus, you want to call him that, that's fine, because Jesus was a real figure, but it's the Father's kingdom, and that's the same person, but that's just a different expression, the Father, and then the Son, and then the Spirit. I guess you could say that too, but there's only one king. We only have one God. And what they said is that God is modulating between expressions. Or Sibelianism, Sibelianism of the 3rd century. Sabalian, uh taught that there is a God that expresses himself in three different ways. And while that makes logical sense, it doesn't make textual sense, and that's the problem with this. Modern day, we have United Pentecostals. Sometimes they call themselves Oneness Pentecostals. Phillips, Craig, and Dean, unless they've renounced that, are Oneness Pentecostals. They, they believe in the hered- heresy of, of modalism or monarchianism, Sibelianism. Now, no one at CCMA or whatever they call it is, you know, hucking rocks at them or anything, but... Good thing they didn't live in the, you know, early church. No one would be buying their albums because they'd be dead. Uh, (laughs) Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Anybody still listen to those guys? They still around? They still doing their thing? Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Is that it? Yeah. They used to be. I don't know if they've renounced it yet. But they they were they were oneness Pentecostals, modalists. God puts on the Father hat. God puts on the Son hat. God puts on the Spirit hat. United Apostolic Church. uh, Another group that in their doctrine, although I could find the United Pentecostals doctrinal statement this afternoon and verify that they have that written into their doctrinal statement, and I know it was true, but I confirmed it. I couldn't find the United Apostolic Church's doctrinal statement, but th- they are known to be modalists. And Now, here's the problem with that. Turn to, turn to Luke 14, just for one example, and this is the one I was quoting off the cuff, but it's important for us to see that this is quite a charade if there's not real distinction between the persons of the Godhead. John chapter fourteen, verse fifteen. Get a little bit of this context here. If you love me, you'll obey my, my, my commands. John fourteen fifteen. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another, the Paracletos, the Counselor, the one to come alongside of you, and He will be with you forever. He is the Spirit of Truth. Verse seventeen. Now the world can't accept Him because He neither sees Him, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you, and He will be in you. The Spirit. So I've got a request going from the Son to the Father to send the Spirit. Now, that's quite a charade if they're all just the same guy putting on three different hats. Why go through all that that, that nonsense? Drop down to verse 25. You can see it again in verse 25. All of this I have spoken to you while still with you, right? But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. Now, that makes no sense if they are the same person. So we're left with one God in three persons, three in one. And you can call me illogical all you want, but just don't call me non-textual because that's what the text presents us with. And if you want to say three is not one and one is not three, fine, I'll give you that. But the church has defended this, the Orthodox Church throughout the generations. And I want to give you just a little taste from two good friends who had really cool hairdos. uh, John and Charles Wesley, just to let you know how far we've slipped from caring about doctrinal precision. Now, I know you know some of the Wesley brothers' hymns, right? We still sing some of them, but you don't sing this one anymore. But this is how concerned these kinds of guys were for the truth of the proper and orthodox view of the nature of God, the triune God. Can you read that? It's really small. Thy glorious deity blasphemes with Arian and Socian dreams. There's a good one, right? Arise ye dead and meet your doom. Check this out. It gets better. Arise ye dead and meet your doom. Arians, behold his glorious face. His face ye shall behold no more. <laughs> you're going to see him, but you're not going to see him anymore. Boot out thine Unitarian foe. No longer let his place be found. The crescent by the cross overthrown. Right? The crescent was the Islam, Right? Islam, they called the Unitarians because they didn't believe in the deity of Christ. The crescent by the cross or, th- or throne, uh, and loose the world in darkness bound. Blasphemies, okay? Men whose Aryans, blasphemies. Dare to scripture doctrine name. That should be a dash in between there. Let their, let their dire delusions cease. Let their dire delusions cease. Oh, this is the best line of the, of the hymn. Sink to hell from whence it came but I like Phillips, Craigs, and Dean's music. I mean, see how far we've come? Can you see how far we've come? When in a day when they used to make it clear doctrine matters and rightly understanding the God of the universe matters, they'd sing songs in church like this. This wasn't the whacked fringe of the church. These are the Wesley brothers, right? The Holiness Club, the Methodist Boys. Think about it. This is the kind of songs they wrote. There's one more, and if I did the whole thing, I'm sure I'd have death threats by the time I'm done, but... (laughs) And this was all mostly, uh, mostly I should say, uh, about Islam. But he says, assert thy glorious deity. Stretch out thine arm, thy triune God. The Unitarian fiend expel <laughs> and chase his doctrine back to hell. <laughs> we can't even call out and out cult groups wrong these days. And they're taking people that name the name of Christ but don't understand the Trinity and want to teach something unbiblical. And saying chase their doctrine back to hell. Amen. <laughs> I mean, that's how the that's how the church did it. Your spiritual forefathers. Now we we're such wimps. All right, real quickly. Important things to remember. Please remember, it cannot be adequately illustrated. And by illustrated, I don't mean a diagram that defines it. I mean an illustration that captures it. I don't mean a diagram that defines it. I mean an illustration that captures it. Do not, please, I'm pleading with you, for all the good you may think comes from the Trinitarian analogies. Please just forget them. Because there is nothing in physics, there's nothing in science, there's nothing in your freezer, right, that is going to illustrate the triune God. So stop. The scripture doesn't try to illustrate it. The scripture throws it out there and says, hey, humans, deal with it, right? And we're trying to tell our, well, it's like water and then like ice and then it's like vapor and it's all the same and it's all water. What? Or daddy, you know, daddy's a husband and he's a dad and he's also an employee and just all one person. (laughs) Stop. I mean, please stop. I mean, I know people love to let people get that we're so logical And I know you didn't understand this, but now I give you that great illustration about, you know, particle physics or quantum mechanics, and now you get it. Really? There's nothing that's going to adequately capture the Trinitarian mystery. And I'm not trying to cop out. I'm just trying to say there's nothing in reality that captures, well, light's a wave and a particle at the same time. I've heard them all, right? Maybe not all of them, but I've heard most of them. And I'm telling you... It is a bizarre reality that we just need to learn to live with. But my five-year-old asks. Mine does too, okay? I understand the tough questions from the five-year-old. And you know what I tell them? You're not going to get it. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry. My daughter sometimes says, well, you know, uh, God and... But Jesus, you know, the second... We were learning about the second God in Sunday school. Jesus, we were. What? Now, don't say that to the Wesley brothers, Right? (laughs) No, that's not right. Now, honey, there's only one God. Well, yeah, but Jesus is God. I understand that. Well, but then the Father's God. I know that there's, there's three gods. They're not going to get it, right? And we're not going to fully capture it either. And this is just, now I'm shooting all over the backyard. But <laughs> let's, go, let's go for this one. Submission doesn't negate equality. Submission doesn't negate equality equality. I'm just trying to go all over the map here. Prototokos, monogenes, firstborn, only begotten, right? In the most universally recognized verse, right? The only begotten son, the one and only son. These things, people, son, the son of God, the son of man. There is clearly submission in the Godhead. That does not mean or negate, I should say, rule out equality. Any more than leadership in the church or leadership in your home should negate equality. I mean, Protestants, are, are, are they get this point, right? I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not uh, I, I don't have more access to God than you do, but there is something to say. There's equality in our relationship with God, but there's something to be said, said about leadership and in the home, right? Wives are not less than husbands. They are co-heirs of the grace of life, but there's headship in the home, right? And there's headship in the church. That concept does not equate equality. That does not negate equality. And all I'm saying is we see it elsewhere in our lives when, when the son submits himself to the father and says, I don't do anything on my own accord, right? Don't freak out because submission does not negate equality and the son was clearly submissive. And so was the spirit. I mean, the spirit could have said to the father, I'm God, you can't tell me what to do. But he, but he doesn't. The Spirit is... Or a lot of people say, well, if they're all equal, you know, why aren't, we giving, why aren't we giving more attention to the Spirit? Well, because the Spirit's role is to give attention to the sun, right? That's what the Bible says. So the concept of let's, you know, see equal roles, they're not equal roles, but they're equal in essence or in worth. Co-equal is the word we use in theology. Let's see, there, there was no Constantinian conspiracy. <laughs> there was no Constantinian conspiracy. I know that the Jehovah Witnesses will knock on your door. You know, Constantine kind of did this whole thing. and just like, the, just like the whole Da Vinci Code crew. Remember, I did a whole message on Constantine once, which bored half the people in the audience to death. But the point was, Constantine was not creating the modern church. Please don't believe that nonsense. Constantine was someone who, whether it was genuine conversion or not, decided to align himself with Christianity. He was in charge of the kingdom. He tried to get people to figure out these, these issues and get their act together. And so they had a lot of councils, and they had a lot of meetings, and they started to give precision with government Uh, uh, a protection and government permission or permissiveness to the church. The church flourished during that time, and it turned into a lot of problems. I'm not big on the Edict of Milan or or Constantine, but the point is that period led to agreements and codification of doctrinal matters. Plus, the language shifted. The language went from Greek to, to Latin, and when that happened, we started to add words like trinitas, we started to add words like uh, substantia, substance, essence. We started to add words for the first time like persona. We didn't have those words in Greek. And those Latin words started to codify the language of theology for the next thousand years. And, and, and there was no conspiracy. This did not start with Constantine. We give Constantine way too much credit. And I did a message on that. I didn't write it down. But the, the whole, the, this whole book, breeding ground for constantinian conspiracies is is absurd and you can find that message on uh, go to the da vinci code sermons i think it was the middle one where we talked about constantine you know was not the uh, ecclesiastical uh, uh, conspirator all right (laughs) d john 1 1 is not mistranslated the new world translation did not get this verse right i know they come to your door and they tell you that and i don't have time for this and my Greek font went berserk just as I was coming over here. So I had to erase all the Greek in this. And in, in, you know John 1, 1, right? Do we, have, do we need to go back to that? John 1, 1. Now, I know we're dealing with an English text. And the English text that you have says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1, 1. Now, that's a pretty strong statement about the Word, who is later defined in the passage in verse number 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. A preexistent one called the Word, the expression of God, comes and lives among us and we've seen his glory. This is John 1.14 I'm reading now. The glory of the one and only. It all hinges on uh, whether it's the word was God or the word was a God. That's what the New World Translation, the JWs, will tell you it means. right? In English, there's a definite and indefinite articles. right? Definite article is the, I think I illustrated it. The and indefinite is a, a, or on, before a vowel. Let's go to the restaurant. Let's go to a restaurant. When I tell my wife, let's go to the restaurant, then I got one in mind. If I say, let's go to a restaurant, I don't have one in mind. That's how the, the articles work. In Greek, there is no indefinite articles, only definite articles. Okay? Amen. All right. Okay, now there's three kinds, masculine, feminine, and neuter. That, I don't know why I put that. It doesn't really matter. Indefinite, there's none. Uh, if you were reading a Greek sentence that had restaurant in it, which there are none, let's go to the restaurant would be how it would be in mind if, if Peter had one in mind. Or let's go to Restaurant. That's how they used a noun without an article that says, I don't have one in mind. English, we add the word a. Uh. There are rules for the definite article and the use of a definite article. If a noun has a definite article, it is always definite. The restaurant, the ball, the trip, the whatever. right? The God means the the God, the only God there is, okay? If a noun does not have a definite article, it may be indefinite, it could be a God, or it may be definite, and there are several specific rules to explain why. When nouns remain definite without a definite article, some examples, proper names and examples here, uh, it's common with an article, okay? Uh, The Peter saw the disciple. The Peter saw Christ. The Peter saw the Christ. Common, okay? But without the definite article, all the time, okay? But it doesn't mean it's indefinite. Peter, right? These are real Greek sentences, and unfortunately from verses in the scripture, my Greek font blew up and messed up, so we're gonna figure that out because my computer doesn't talk well to that computer for some reason. But uh, Peter, but answering said. Now, Peter has no definite article. Do we mean a Peter, some Peter, some Peter answered? No, no, no. It's assumed that that it's the definite Peter, the Peter that we have in mind, because it's a proper noun, and often proper nouns don't have the definite article. As an object of a preposition, preposition, right? A direction, in, upon, beyond, after, in front of, uh, toward, uh, uh, away from. Uh, if, a prepos- if it's an object of a preposition, it, it, it is without the, the article. In, in John 1, uh, in the beginning was the word. That's how it's translated in verse 1, in the beginning. There's no article there. But in, the preposition is pointing to beginning, you assume the definite article, in beginning. Not in a beginning, but in the beginning. And that's why it translates it that way. And the JWs never care about that one. As a predicate nominative. Now there's a fun phrase we haven't heard since high school. As a predicate nominative. There is no object case. When there's no object case, because the verb doesn't take an object case, like the verb to be, right, is, am, are, were, and was, okay, then it doesn't it doesn't take an object case, for instance, in English uh it, on the phone is this Mike Fabar is it is me, that's wrong, right? We never say it the right way, but the right way to say it uh, is the way our English teacher wanted to say it. it is I, but then we sound like Shakespeare, so we don't say it that way, but that's the right way to say it because <laughs> is is the verb to be, and it does not take an object case, therefore you have to have the subject case on the other side of the verb to be be the same as the subject case because it's like an equal sign. And you grammarians all know this. That's the correct way to say it. Because is requires the subject case. Always. Okay. When nouns remain definite without the definite article, there are at least seven other rules. Okay? And we could bore you with them. If you want, you can go in our bookstore. I don't know why it's there, but the Dana and Manti Greek Rules of Grammar, uh, there are at least eight or nine rules in there as to why a noun will not... Proceed with a I mean, will not have the definite article. An arthris. That's what we call it. Doesn't have an article. And yet it is definite. Okay? With ordinal numbers, object complement constructions. Blah, 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 blah. We don't have room time for all that. One more note about the Greek before we get to John 1.1. 1, 1. The word order in Greek is fluid. Have you heard me say it for that from the platform a hundred times? Word order in Greek is fluid. In other words, it doesn't matter. You can take a Greek sentence for the most part in almost every sentence, t- put the words in there because it's so highly inflected, put them in a bag, spill them on a table, and a Greek student should be able to say, okay, there's the subject, there's the object. Word order doesn't matter, by and large. Word order is used instead for emphasis. Great was the game. Superb was the sermon. Awesome, right? You sound like Yoda, Yoda when, you, when you do it sometimes, but the emphasis goes up front if there is emphasis. The sermon was great doesn't really mean in Greek as as much as great was the sermon. See? That is emphasis. That's an exclamation point. So word order is used for emphasis in the Greek language. Crashed John the car. I would say that when I were mad, right? Crashed John the car. Okay? Restaurant. Let's go to. (laughs) Greek, Greek does that kind of thing if the emphasis is on restaurant. It's a way to italicize a word mentally in the word order in Greek. Oh, boy. My Greek stuff went away. So we threw this on here. Here's the Greek sentence transliterated for you on John 1 1. In arche in ho lagos, kai ho lagos in proston theon kai theos in ho lagos. Now, wow, that went away real fast. I don't know. There was there was more on the page, but it's gone now. In the beginning was the word. We should have put those on top of each other. And the word was with God. And the word and God literally was. The word. If you took that last frame and then put this up, this is the word or, this is the literal translation. In beginning, no article, but we know it's in our, We know why beginning is an It's an arthris because it follows a preposition. In beginning was the word, and the word was with the God, and God was the word. Okay? Here's the controversy. It surrounds the last phrase, and here is the verb to be, was. Okay? Problem is God. We don't know whether that is the subject or the object. And we wouldn't know grammatically in Greek if you could see the Greek which was there before my fonts blew up because it looks the same as the subject case would. The object case and the subject case looks the same because the verb to be. So now I need to know is it there for emphasis? Okay? I wouldn't know. One of the rules of I wouldn't know whether the word was God or God was the word. I wouldn't know. Okay? The way you tell in Greek here's the punchline. I know it's uh and the word was God because God is an arthurus It doesn't have the, the article. If the article is missing here, I know. God is at the beginning because it's emphasis. See? And the word is the subject. Great was the restaurant. God was the word. But the point is, the word was God. That's the point of that sentence. Any Greek student who takes any Greek... I took my first year of Greek... Uh, I took more years at at seminary. I took my first year of Greek at the University of Arizona uh, but in the classics department, right? With some really weird people uh, who had no concern for the Bible, but we all sat there and learned Greek for a year. My first exposure to Greek was with absolutely no biblical um, uh, bias at all. And every student in my class, in the the classics department, is going to translate this, right? If they know anything after the first year of Greek grammar, they're going to say, and the word was God, they would not translate it. The word was "a god." No one would do that. Okay? Examples in John 1, and I use the New World Translation right now, of anarthrous nouns. And again, I had all the Greek sentences up here, which my Greek font blew up. Did I tell you that? There arose a man that was sent forth as a representative of, guess what? The word theos there at the end of this sentence? It's anarthrous. There's no article. But guess what the New World Translation... This is the New World Translation on the screen right now. Guess what they don't do? They don't say a god. Why not? Well, because they're keeping the rules of grammar here. They just didn't keep the rules of grammar in the first verse. I got a bunch of them here. John 1.12, New World Translation. To them he gave authority to become God's children, okay? There's no article on the word theos there, okay? But it follows the words, the rules of grammar. Uh, John 1.13, uh, they were born uh, not of human will, not of human decision, but from God, There's no article there. But why don't they translate it, a god? Because they're following the rules of grammar, which they didn't do in verse 1. John 1.18, another anarthrous use of theos. No man has seen God, theos, at any time. There's no article there. Ho, the Greek article, definite masculine article, is not there. But they still translate it, God. They don't say no man has seen a god, but that's literally what they would do if they kept the same rule from verse one in the rest of the chapter. And I could have gone on, and I did it one time. And I got to like chapter seven in the New World Translation, taking my Greek New Testament and their translation, going, "Look at all the anarthrous uses of theos, where they followed the rules. But in the first verse, guess what? Conveniently, they don't. And again, I'm all for calling Jesus something less than God. I'm all for it. I want to become a Jehovah Witness today, seriously. If that's what the Bible teaches, I got no axe to grind. I don't care. I want to follow the evidence wherever it goes. The problem is, I'm just telling you, the New World Translation, so many articles you could read on this, is just not an honest translation because they follow the rules when they want to and they don't follow it when they don't want to. That's what we didn't have time for and I'm way late right now. John 1.1 is not mistranslated. Letter E, it is difficult doctrine accepted on textual evidence. Letter F, God is more complex than human comprehension. And I had stuff to say about that, but I have no time. It's a difficult doctrine. We don't accept it on, on, wow, it really makes sense to us. We accept it because that's what the Bible leads us to accept, and the church has accepted it from the beginning. Don't let anybody at your door go, oh, you know, Constantine created this, or some council created it. We didn't. We refined the terminology. We shifted from Greek language to to Latin. We codified words like substance, essence, person, trinitas, trinity. We got those kinds. God is more complex than human comprehension. I hope you want it that way, don't you? (laughs) Dr. Gaffin, one of our profs at uh, Westminster, said uh, to my doctoral studies there, he said, if you've come to Westminster Theological Seminary to study and learn God, oh, I'm sorry, to study and learn so that God is more comprehensible to you, he said, then you've come to the wrong place. (laughs) And that's the truth. As we know more about God, Dr. Gaffin said, we see more of his incomprehensibility. And as I like to say, or my old pastor used to always say, hey, we're just, the more we study, we're just going to be confused on a higher level. <laughs> because God is a complex creature that your little finite mind and my finite mind is not going to fully comprehend. So let's not be tritheists. Let's not be Unitarians. Uh, and let's not be modalists. Let's be bibli- biblical Christians who believe in the triunity of God. Let's pray. God, thanks for our night. Thanks for our study. Amen.